Welcome to Trigonomic. This is Ruth. And this is Alexandra. Being in diaspora, we're very aware that queer issues and struggles first world countries differ greatly from queer issues and struggles in the global south, particularly in Southeast Asia. In Indonesia, the rise of ultra-conservatism has resulted in multiple forms of violence against queer people and queer communities, which is ironic because the Indonesian language itself is gender-neutral and many ethnic traditions don't conform to the gender binary. It is hard to unpack such a complex topic, but we try to explore some of these things with Ragil Huda, an academic in Germany whose work revolves around supporting queer migrants, refugees, and asylum seekers. Ragil co-founded QTI BIPOC in Hamburg, organizes for Queer Asia in Berlin, and curates for Soy Division, a queer Indonesian arts collective in Germany. Hailing from a small town near Martapura in South Sumatra, he has worked with the trans community in Yogyakarta and the arts community in Penang before coming to pursue his graduate studies at the University of Hamburg. If you're wondering about his winding journey, let's feast and find out. I wonder, like, because you said the queer people in Indonesia just have this dream of, like, um, moving away. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, like, is there still a sense of, you know, maybe we shouldn't move away. Maybe we should, like, stay in Indonesia and make a change and, like, be be the change you want to see or, you know, whatever Mm -hmm. that cliche phrase is, right? or because of like the movement towards like ultra conservatism um, that's been happening recently that, you know, it's just so exhausting already. And, you know, the queer communities all over Indonesia are just like, you know what, fuck it. Well, we'll just mm-hmm. like get the fuck out right. and like move somewhere else where we feel we feel safe. Right. Yeah. I mean, I worked with a transgender community in Indonesia and that kind of the way for me in um, Jogja right in Jogja yeah they changed my life so that was before you moved to uh, Malaysia or after that you came back that was before I moved to Malaysia um I was uh, working for two students from the states doing like research on uh, gender studies and like the transgender community in, in Jogja and yeah, like those people that I worked with, I love them so much to change my life for the better without them knowing it. You know, like I try to sort of show up for them whenever I can from afar. But yeah, like the transgender community, they remain persistent in their fight. And from, yeah, my understanding, like nobody from the community ever wants to like move away from their community because of like, you know, I think... I will admit that I have certain privilege with like knowing English, for example, being able to go to university regardless of like my background, somehow I made it work. Uh, but for many people, education, you know, was not an option for them. For them, you know, it's about surviving and like going through this sort of uh, process of trying to figure out their gender identities. Uh, and for many people as well, it has something to do with their families because not everyone can do what I'm doing here. For example, I don't talk to my family anymore. And that was like a choice that I made. Um, And I know how difficult it will be to live without your family support, you know, financially. And I had to hustle and I worked as sex worker um, until today as well. And that's how I sustain myself. So the journey of like 
my migration you know journey is like was not easy and it's not easy and i don't think this is for everyone and going back to your question i think i know a lot of queer people in indonesia they want to stay in like this real change in, in indonesia it's like a lot of people in in my generation, I feel like because we consume so much of like cultures, global cultures from the West, um, without like having this like critical thinking about race, for example, and like class imperialism, they kind of like have this uh, imagination of like what queer life can look like. So that's why, you know, we need to be critical in like what we consume, what we listen, what we watch, the kind of films. If you keep watching about like what people being happy, like call me by your name, Fuck that shit. Like nobody cares about like two, uh, you know, rich white guys in Italy. Uh, but then a lot of like gay people, they love that because of like for them it's like the life that they want to live. But like that's unrealistic, first of all. You know, like you're seeing like exactly you're seeing like two privileged people yeah. <laughs> from like upper class background. So like that's not our life. So what is important is I'm so glad that TV shows like Post, for example, and mm. Paris is Burning, like all these films that I mm. only discovered, you know, like not a long time ago, that really changed the way how, how I perceive myself in the queer community because before I came here, the term personal color was not part of my vocabulary, right? Because everyone in Malaysia and Indonesia mm. is a person of color. Mm-hmm. So I had to learn how to navigate, you know, like this white society Every time, like, white Germans, they love to stare at you on the train. <laughs> it makes you feel uncomfortable. This Really? Little... Like, even in Berlin, where it's pretty diverse? Or Not I guess so you're much... in Hamburg. Yeah, because I spent, like, the first year in Hamburg, and that was kind of, a, like, a weird experience, right? Mm-hmm. Either they look at me because I'm cute, or they look at me because they want to kill me. <laughs> and, like, you know, they want to kick me out of this country. <laughs> um, but yeah, because uh, I think Hamburg is like 70 percent of the populations uh is white so mm-hmm. that explains a lot but yeah not so much in in, in berlin i feel like safer here but like safe for she's gay person and i need to emphasize that because for trans people it's not safe so i think we don't talk uh enough about this you know like safety in, in berlin because we're a lot of people uh, trans people specifically like berlin is not safe in certain you know Various. place yeah. yeah but when you were in malaysia did you feel like in terms of discrimination, because both countries are very Muslim countries, mm, right? Mm. In terms of discrimination, do you, did you feel any differences mm. or pretty much the same thing? Because when I was there, you know, I read as Malay mm. <laughs> also with my name. So like they have this like Malay privilege. Um, so I never had uh, discrimination in terms of my race because I think they thought that I was part of them, that I was like one of them. But like in terms of sexuality, I somehow managed to find people who were supportive of my identity. I never had any problems with that. And I'm really good at navigating these friendships. I don't have a lot of straight friends. <laughs> mm. I found those communities in Malaysia, like the friends from the apps, from like different spaces. Um, mm. And I felt safe with my queer siblings in Malaysia and Penang. And uh, I sort of like spend a lot of time with them and... Uh, that was really good. And, you know, like the art scenes in Penang is quite big as well. And I kind of uh, associated myself with them. And yeah, I think after years of discrimination and bullying, you know, like I felt like I needed to find a place that I felt safe and I was able to find that. So I'm lucky in that sense. And I was able to find, you know, like that community in Malaysia. In Indonesia, I think the discrimination and the bullying stopped when I was like 17 or 18. 
I don't know. I think it was also like a process for my straight friends in Indonesia to understand, you know, like queer stuff because they're like super woke. But at the same time, I think if you don't have the lived experience as a queer person, it's difficult to like see things, you know, from super woke about what though? Like, are they super woke about? Because I feel like some people are super woke about like colonialism but then when they deal with like issues that have to do with queer people they're still like very homophobic um and so it's like I guess like I always ask you know like are you really woke if you yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know if it's just like one part of it yeah I think it, they were kind of knowledgeable and resourceful in certain areas I think it and queerness wasn't one of them I think they were kind of like radical in some ways about challenging you know like nationalism Mm -mm, Um, yeah yeah it's always like that yeah I mean as you know 17 years old person I think that's how much we know about things right yeah yeah. it was the beginning of like you started to see the flaws in your government in your countries and you sort of like question about nationalism as well because that is something that is like a big project for them. Uh, Everywhere they go. And can I ask like where in Indo this was? Jogja. Yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> of <yeah>. course. <laughs> I lived there for almost 10 years, uh, but I grew up in a small village uh, in South Sumatra. It's South it's Sumatra, yeah. Bumblebuck fuck somewhere. I don't think nobody knows about Where? Where in Sumatra? Uh, Martapura. Martapura? Yeah. Oh, Kutimur, like... Baturaja. It's like seven hours from Palembang. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I know, yeah. but I I know Baturaja, but I've I mean, I've never been there. Mm. Um, yeah, so it's like one hour from Baturaja. <laughs> um, it's like a tiny village. I was like a little faggot. <laughs> I think I was the only gay like in the village. <laughs> <laughs> and I went to like Islamic boarding schools for like pretty much my entire life. You know, like when I was there until I was like seventeen, and I was like, this is too much for me. I need to like find out, you know, my. Wait, so you yeah. went to an Islamic school in um, Baturaja? In Martapura. In Martapura, right, right, yeah. okay. And I went to like a lot of different Prasantran Islamic boarding schools in Java as well, and my parents sent me there. I did not like it. I was depressed, you know, like, I don't know, like, it was kind of toxic environment for me, <laughs> and I couldn't finish my education. So uh, I had to take packet say exam because I couldn't finish my uh high school because I was super depressed uh in my second year and I wanted to go home because I was so far from my you know like from my family and I was like in a foreign place and um in this like very toxic environment and uh, so your family is Javanese but then they are in Sumatra yeah. guest workers is that a thing I don't know like is there a term for that like guest they, workers yeah they is were it from, like part of the program transmigrasi yeah um, yeah, I'll sing it with my mom too. What is the term like if you're Japanese but born in Sumatra? I forgot that. Oh, term really? There's a term, there's a term yeah. for that. Yeah, there's a term like yeah. Ah, I'm gonna ask my mom. Ruth, you should term. know because your family is <laughs> that, right? I mean, my mom, but the rest like it's yeah. just my mom. But yeah, I forgot the term. But anyway, yeah, yeah. I think growing up in Sumatra and you know like in that village was tough, and I was sent to a mental hospital at some point because of like. Nobody seemed to understand my struggle and mm. just, you know, I think they did not understand anything about my life. Like I never really like hung out with friends and I would spend time by myself 
um, and then never felt like I fit in, even like in elementary school. You know, I was always that weird kid mm. and I was always excluded in any activities and, you know, throughout my schooling times in Indonesia. And that really damaged my self-esteem. <laughs> I need to talk about this with my therapist because I have <laughs> a lot of my childhood traumas and I was always this, you know, like easy target for bullying. Yeah, and that lasted for I don't know almost like 19 years of my life and I had to put up with that without any real support from not even my family could support mm-hmm. me because they mm-hmm. didn't understand anything about being queer and at some point I never came up to my family I think it happened organically and I never told them that I was gay it was just like yeah I don't think I can have this like I don't think I can live up to your expectation to build a family like the traditional you know like the stuff that you have with like your wife or you know your husband because I, don't, I think I'm different and I, I don't think this is something for me and uh, I never publicly came out it was just like mm. a natural process and I think like coming out is like a very much embedded in this like a western way of like mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah you know, yeah thinking um, mm-hmm. Because in Indonesia, like pre-colonial time, you know, queer people have always been there. Mm-hmm. And now we have to find the language, how to reclaim our narratives, right? So I yeah. think I'm lucky enough that I never had to go through that. And I don't want to encourage people to come out um, because, you know, like in your own time um, and like find something that works for you. I wouldn't want someone to like lose their family, which is like a biggest support for many people. And just like that for the sake of being yourself, I think we should have more conversation about this with them as well and like kind of decolonize the idea of like coming out and how to find sort of kind of like support and at the same time maintaining your relationship with your family if that is something you wanted to but for me it wasn't an option because I knew that I just did not want to associate myself with them the moment I left Indonesia um like nobody from in my family knows where I am today or like what I'm doing which I think you know sometimes if I go to sleep it's so sad like the people I grew up with the person who birthed me, you know, doesn't even doesn't even know where I am now. But I think that's like you know, our reality for a lot of queer people. And uh, I'm glad that I'm surrounded with people with the shared experiences as well. And that kind of like gives me this confidence and affirmation that I'm just like them. And I, you know, was able to build family from that sort of like experience and like you know, friendships. Honestly, it's, it is the most beautiful things that ever happened in my life. And I would die for them. I would die for my queer family and like the transgender community in Indonesia. I owe my life to them because without them, I wouldn't be where I am today. And oh, how did you get involved in that, the working with the trans community in Jogja? Uh, funny because it, it was through this white person, <laughs> a white gay, who was doing like a research on uh, transgender and Muslim in Indonesia. And I met him of Grinder, I think. <laughs> and mm. we went, we had a we had a drink, and he told me about his project. That's amazing that you guys went from Grinder to an academic yeah. research project. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and also, he helped me to get to my uh, graduate school. He wrote me like recommendation letters mm. as well, and that was yeah. I'm like, that's I a- mean, <laughs> from Grinder, that that's like you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, David, um, his name. I think there were so many stuff that I did not know, you know, like I was 19 or like 18. Mm. I guess like that knowledge of 
research and like knowledge production, it wasn't the healthiest, I would say. It was like toxic, but I did not know any better back then, you know, like from like Western perspective. But, you know, like from that moment, I think I grew as a person and I developed these like tools to better understand academic and knowledge production and how not to cause harm and, and exploit, you know, like our own people. Mm, mm, um, yeah. This is uh, my personal project from my university as well. I try to use work from people of color for my thesis, like, mm-hmm. you know, references and stuff, mm-hmm. my uh, literature review. I try to look at queer and queer migrations journey through the lens of queer people of color. But I guess like, yeah, that was like a different time back then. So yeah, because of him, I was able to connect with the transgender community. So the research was about transgender and Islam in Indonesia. And what were the findings? Or is that, you know, like, what was it a thesis? It was a thesis project. And uh, I worked as an interpreter and translator. And I transcribed the interviews and stuff. And uh, yeah, I think I wasn't as critical as I am today, I think. It was like, okay, and you know, I had to do that because of like, I need money. <laughs> right, right. Um, but it was like a good kind of, I think it was a lesson for me as well. I'm still in contact with the people that I worked with. So I think it's a good sign. And, and what did he discover from doing the project? He never sent me his... Um, <laughs> Uh, dissertation. Oh, wow. Even though you assisted him? I think that's really common practice in the academic world, unfortunately. And like that, it's very toxic. And I've seen a lot of people done this kind of stuff towards, you know, like queer and transgender community in Indonesia. Mm -hmm. And also like with the language and everything. English is not my first language. It's very inaccessible. Nobody from the queer community and the transgender community will ever understand, you know, like this jargon. So I think Mm, that is a question that I, myself, you know, I'm asking myself, like, how to make my work accessible because I want it to be accessible for people to read. I don't care about the institutions because I'm working as a cultural worker and curator. And what I do is to sort of, like, influence, you know, like, social change through academia. I guess uh, the challenge right there is to make it accessible and that, is not easy because, you know, like people question the value of your work and who's going to publish your work. But I don't Mm -hmm. care about this kind of stuff because I think I have like clear mindset and like vision as to how I want to shape my work as an academic. And I think it's a process of unlearning all of the stuff from the traditional like way of thinking and like knowledge knowing and writing as well. There should be more sort of like forms of knowledge productions. It shouldn't be just like, thesis you know write something if that is something you are good at sure but like there should be more sort of like variety of that for example films Mm -hmm. Uh, and um, that's what I'm trying to do with my work uh, in academia is to integrate the art queer activism and migration studies as well actually how did you learn English like is that Uh, a I never went to like after school programs. I, I did for like a few months, but then I, I don't know, I watched a lot of American TV shows. Mm. I listened to a lot of podcasts. I read a lot of books. I hung out with so many like people. When I was in Indonesia, it was kind of problematic mm. behavior. <laughs> like I spent a lot of time with like people from cat serving, you know, like white travelers. And uh, mm. But yeah, just over time, I think you kind of, 
get used to it. And I think if I can do that with English, I can do that with German. But German is like a whole different thing. <laughs> do you think oh, do you God, think yeah. it was easier it was easier for you to learn English also because you were younger? I was 17 when I started to learn English properly. Mm. But they say like the benchmark is like 25. After 25 then it's like so much harder to absorb a new language. Okay. I don't know but my time like... is offered for German. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm like, oh well I guess like is my time over for like to to actually be able to know French enough? No, I think you can make it work if you mm. are committed to that, if you put your mind into it. I'm just lazy. I'm going to admit that I'm just a lazy bum. And I guess that's why it's, it's so ironic because I live in Germany. I don't, I never speak German unless if I go to a coffee shop. You don't need right. to. Like, I, I don't need to. In also, Berlin, very... you can survive versus in yeah. Paris, you cannot survive if you don't speak French, I feel. Yeah, but I don't want to be one of those people, though. I want mm-hmm. to, like, immerse myself in this. I want to connect to the queer BIPOC community, right? Mm-hmm. And I guess, like, because now that I'm working with the Black, brown people here, mm-hmm. it's so different, like, hearing, like, their version of German is different from the white German. Mm-hmm. I think it's the same thing, like, in, in the States. Like language-wise? Yeah, like the mm. accent and everything, the dialects mm. and stuff. So I feel whenever I'm with my BIPOC friend, like person of color, it feels different. And I it gives me this motivation to learn because some of them, they, they don't have enough vocabularies in English to express themselves. So like, you know, it's so interesting to like hear them speak German because I'm used to like hearing white people speak German, but like mm. when it's like a person of color, yes, this is the kind of person I want to engage with. And this is the reason why I need to learn German mm. and I can do this, you know? And I know a lot of Indonesians actually, like I think I'm the only one who doesn't speak German. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, in my circle, I'm the only one who's like suck at German um, because they are studying in German, um, yeah. which is impressive. Imagine writing a thesis in German. Yeah, I can't uh, imagine. And I salute them. You know, like good for you. Like I'm actually so any any language. I feel any that's language, not yeah. like English and English, Indonesian. Exactly. I'm like, how do you guys no, do no, it? No. Exactly. Survival. Yeah. But German is still it's still like Roman alphabets, right? I'm thinking of like Arabic, ah. Japanese, Chinese, where it's not even Roman alphabets. It's like yeah. how do you even <laughs> read and write all of these things? Yeah. No, I feel ashamed of myself. I mean, I don't want to be ignorant. <laughs> and it, especially if you are planning on staying here longer, I think it's important to also understand the language. I don't want to reproduce that toxic behavior with white people living in Bali or like anywhere in Indonesia. And I think I don't know why people are so mean when it comes to a person of color not understanding you know this like colonial language but then white people in indonesia they never learn indonesian mm-hmm. nobody question anything mm-hmm. even indonesian themselves they mm-hmm. like it when they speak yeah. english mm-hmm. and, you know, i keep is- saying that all the time <laughs> and people are like what are you talking about thank yeah. you for saying that white people yeah. don't make a freaking effort but then they expect no. us to learn their language i know they are so mean and like here i can you know like i see people People being mean to me I mean give me a break I've been here for two years you know there's there's time for everything and I'm just oh you've only been there for two years I thought you've been there I, longer 
No, I've been here for like two years. I moved here during winter semester 2018. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. It's like, it's such a problem that in Indonesia, if like a white person can say satu dua tiga and it's like, oh my Everyone God. Is like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> when you, when you can speak to me like fluently in Indonesian about political uh, debates and like emotional, like deep emotional stuff, then maybe I can like, <laughs> you know, say, okay. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. Nobody like it's like a outstanding, you know, applause here. You see a lot of Indonesians, not even Indonesians, a lot of people who are from outside of Germany speaking German. Nobody says anything. But like in Indonesia, I think I don't know. When I was there, it was as problematic, and I was part of that as well. <laughs> mm. I feel guilty. Um, so yeah, I'm curious about because since you went to Pesantren to Pesantren and another Pesantren. I'm always curious about the way we perceive like transgender and Islam back home because we have a figure mm. like Dorce Gamalama, which is like, mm. it's very confusing. And like, yeah, I don't know where the boundaries because now she's wearing hijab and she went to Mecca and she's trans. She's a trans, yeah, trans woman, right? So from your perspective, who used to study Islam or religion, what is your perspective um, of Indonesian attitude toward, I guess, entertainment figure? Well, that's a big question. Um, I mean, I don't want to cause any problem or controversy mm-hmm. from this conversation because I'm not a trans person. Right, right. Um, yeah, I think from my personal experience of being or like, you know, went to several Islamic boarding schools, it was common as well for men to sort of like pleasure sexually like each other at night and I had that experience as well and nobody ever talked about it you know I had a fling with I had a crush on someone that I went to school with like we would do stuff you know at night but then in the, in the morning he would pretend like nothing happened and I think it's really common in this environment you can ask everyone in the queer and trans community in Indonesia those who went to Islamic boarding school they went through this phase in their life But nobody said anything about that. So the I think yeah. it's the same with like so, like uh, what do you call that? Like a school for you to become a pastor. Yeah. So when I when I was in Jogja, like um, I also discovered that like people in Jogja told me like I, I guess like I because when I went to Indonesia, I had been living in the states for like 10 years, and so I didn't really have like much context. And then people told me about that, and I was like so shocked, I guess, or in my mind because like you know there's spotlight in my mind. It was just like Catholic boarding schools mm-hmm. and then there's like no like it happens in islamic boarding schools all the time like and they're like of course like how do you not know that like <laughs> like how are you so stupid and naive and you don't know that and i'm like I, I guess it's like, unless you go to uh, an Islamic boarding school, you don't know, right? Or, you know, there hasn't been like a version of spotlight for, <laughs> you know, an, a different version of spotlight, I guess. Yeah. You know, that makes it mainstream knowledge. It happens all the time. It's like, um, everyone knows about it, but they don't talk about it. <laughs> yeah, like it was such an interesting experience for me. I thought at some point I was going to be like an imam or something. Because <laughs> I was like, I was so religious, deeply, deeply religious. And it's so interesting how much I've changed. And, you know, I think that was also like a process. I think like a lot of part of my life is like detaching myself from this toxic environment and like, you know, beliefs that I never thought I would be part of. I was 
teenager, right? So I had to denounce that I was atheist. And then I had to figure out my sexuality. And it's an ongoing process. I don't think there's a, an end to it. And it's exhausting to constantly be in this kind of like state of mind. I feel like, you know, it's like running away and then detaching yourself from like certain values and like certain sort of like teaching and, you know, institution and religions as well. There's so much stuff that for us to unpack. And I never had a therapist until I, in Malaysia, that was my first time I got in kind of like in touch with my emotions <laughs> mm-hmm. and I was able to have like uh, sessions with a therapist and that was really good and uh, I benefited a lot from that but again you know the stigma of mental health in Indonesia I was like 10 when I was sent to this mental hospital in Palembang and when I came back home to my village everyone thought that I was crazy and imagine mm-hmm. as a 10 years old person like you do not know why people would talk shit about you mm-hmm. and I would lock myself in my room for like three months because I felt ashamed of myself that I felt like I was failing my parents and my family and my community and that was a dangerous thing for like a 10 years old person you know for people to put this expectation on someone mm-hmm. who was like 10 years old mm-hmm. and I was like trigger warning I was suicidal as well and it was the result of this a lot of stuff that I just did not understand I never had any friends who you know was queer even like in my time it was like I, was, I felt like I was alone in this world I was walking this on this you know like path by myself I was lonely you know um and I'm just sometimes I think about like those people who are now in my situation and like trying to figure out their identity but thankfully now with the internet I'm hoping that they can find some sort of like support from the online communities but back mm. then when I first had my computer, I was, I think, like 16 or something, quite late. Mm. And I was the first one to connect computer to, you know, my phone and, like, connect to the internet, internet. I think. Mm-hmm. And it was the I, uh, MIRC, I think. And that's how I got to kind of, like, in contact with so many different people. Mm. Um, and, yeah, the internet was my best friend. <laughs> but, like, you know. Do you think if you grew up in Jogja or Jakarta, you will be less lonely? Uh... Yeah, I think if had it, my parents were middle class, I think I would be better equipped with mm-hmm. this kind of stuff. And But, you know, like, I think being poor, not being able to afford anything, like reading wasn't even part of our uh, activity. Um, so, yeah, I think, like, just imagine being poor with so many different dreams and, you know, kind of imaginations. And you don't have any access to those kind of stuff that would help you to like kind of like go further so that's why like every time I work with people I always I'm I'm interested in like hearing their stories growing uh so that how I can like relate to this person and and how we can support each other better I try not to work so much with like middle class or like upper class people Mm -hmm. um because I think that really I don't know there's like a big gap in like understanding our struggles like imagine not having food on your table like a few days ago I almost cried when I was doing grocery shopping because I only had like 50 euros and it's just so fucked up in this situation right now and you know so I'm fortunate with like the platform that I'm, that I'm running uh, the Queer Asia Film Festival 2021 is funded this year so like I'm so happy that you know this is happening and I just received funding from the European Solidarity Corps and Erasmus Plus to do projects. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I asked that question because 
in Jakarta, at least in the 80s, there are like already uh, gay community and lesbian community, transgender community, right? In a way that they're more open. So I'm just wondering, you mm-hmm. know, it's like, I guess location make difference? 100%. Uh, I think the same thing can be said about Berlin and New York as well. Yeah. Even in Germany, if you're from like, I don't know, Essen or something, <laughs> like a small city, mm-hmm. uh, it would it's difficult for you to kind of be yourself. And I think people take yeah. this thing for granted in Berlin. Mm. And it is very unfortunate that everything is sort of like here in, you know, in one place. And it's not mm. fair for people living in smaller places. Um, and part of our vision is to decentralize our platform. So we are planning to organize activities outside of Berlin, for example, Hamburg, Cologne, Bremen, you know, like smaller cities. Uh, maybe like they don't have the opportunities to funding and queer people and to create that's kind of like safe space for queer people to know that they're not alone are you guys still in quarantine or yeah they just extended no they just just extended extended. (laughs) 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 it's it's sort of the better you know but i don't know they um if you're uh, a registered artist meaning like you have artist visa and tax number you can claim for like financial relief um, oh my god really yeah. Yeah. fuck the yeah. u.s needs that but sadly the u.s is the opposite of social democracy the so. u.s this is like imperialist country you know like they claim themselves to be like this so capitalist countries in the world but they're not they're not the most powerful if you look at other countries in europe and you know like i have that sort of like imagination and like I thought, you know, the U.S. was like the greatest country because of like all the stuff that I watched. And then I moved, you know, I moved here and I, and, and then I talked to a lot of people and I'm starting to understand that it was all made up stories, you know, mm-hmm. like this is how they mm-hmm. maintain their power. This is how they indoctrinate people like outside of that, you know, like even mm-hmm. before with this, the CIA, with the arts and everything, they influence the world yeah media yeah yeah we need to be mindful and critical about that stuff so every time i watch something from the u.s i'm always like you know suspicious about like even even the paris review um you know the literary journal the paris review Mm -hmm. that was part of like a cia exploit um yeah for their cold war narrative yeah Um, so like i i also found out about that like recently like not like maybe like two years one two years ago Mm -hmm. and i was just like what the I don't know. It's just yeah, yeah. <laughs> <a> filthy, <laughs> but I think also like you know in the in the states there's so many movements happening. The abolition, you know, movement, transformative justice from like grassroots communities. I listen to a lot of podcasts from them as well, and I think that is something that needs to be addressed because I feel like the knowledge production is one-sided. This is from Alok. Um, they also share about like the gender studies and like queer studies in the world is like one-sided because we have a lot of scholars from the U.S. and we use their methods and you know like our work uh, in our thesis. But like you don't see a lot of that coming from Europe or like Asia, right? So that's how the U.S. maintains their power through like university, these like neoliberal universities, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we need to be more critical about that and we need to be always like 
open to discussing about this stuff. Um, I mean, one of the one of the things that like we Ruth and I are planning to do an episode about um, theory of the global south or theory mm-hmm. for the global south because like it's it's hard to quote unquote study or whatever or like observe things mm-hmm. that are happening like cultural changes in the global south and like analyze them with theories that have been developed from the western perspective because things are not translatable things are not mm. it's it's such a different concept and that like i guess like this like global south theory is still like such a new mm. yeah yeah in terms of like formal academia like i'm sure like we've had our own theories going on and stuff mm. but like in terms of uh what do you call it like putting it into you know academia like it's mm-hmm. still it's still a new concept yeah right? it is because we don't have we don't see so many like scholars from the global south um we have a lot of those actually we just need to find them <laughs> i have like few books from them actually so they exist it's just that the white academics they like to get keep academia because that was their project you know like that was their imperialist project as well mm-hmm. and get keeping is not our thing so i think <laughs> That is also labor as well to challenge the institution you mm-hmm. work with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. I don't want to like steer any tea or like, you know, I don't want to have any beef with my institution because I just want to get my degree. I got out and do something with my community. Um, mm-hmm. But I guess, uh, you know, for some people, you can find joy or, you know, sort of like energy from that. Mm-hmm. But it's not for everyone. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I have to write a lot of papers in Indonesia about, for my university, and sometimes I'm like, this is triggering. <laughs> <laughs> um, like the politics and everything. But like with my thesis, it's going to be like something completely different. It's like queer and, uh, you know, like Asian focus, mm-hmm. moving away from the notion of like nation state. I want to challenge the, the department. What is what is your like? Can I ask like what specifically about Southeast Asia is your research about? Yeah, um, like I'm trying to narrow it down to queer migration and the arts and how queer migration trajectories inform their uh, gender identities and how the arts provide an avenue for them to express themselves and their identities compared to where. They were before so how this sort of like migration sort of like shaped their identity as a person as a queer person and how they reclaim their narratives and how they see their sort of like maybe like in the context of indonesia how they see and perceive their indonesianness from the outside and but definitely it will be on the queer migration politics and the arts but i think it's like a big of a topic so i need to narrow it down to either migration or the arts mm-hmm. Also, it's uh, imperative uh, research. So, like, I cannot do anything right now because of the lockdown. So, yeah. mm. I think part of like the most important part of my work is to be with people and to have conversation with them. And uh, I'm planning to make a film with that. So, I'm hoping that as soon as the lockdown is lifted, I can, you know, we can come back to and rebuild our community and create and curate, you know, performances and like events for for them. And hopefully I'll be able to have some sort of like more in-depth conversation with the people that I work with here who migrated from the global south. So it's not specifically focusing on Indonesia, not even like Southeast Asia, because the uh, nation of like Southeast Asia 
does not exist. It's a social construct. So you can yeah. argue with that as yeah. well. So, and all the stuff that I read, it's mostly like American-centered knowledge. So mm. the challenge with that is to sort of apply that in the context of uh, Europe or Germany. So it's a big topic. And yeah, I don't know. I'm still struggling. I don't want to think about I do want to think about it because I love the topic. It's like my baby, but also like, I don't know. I feel I feel yeah. like that with all of my projects. Like I, I know that I'm passionate about it and it's important. And like, I need to talk about it and like put it out there. So like the work can have a life on its own beyond just like a project. But it's also so exhausting because it's like, oh my God, this is like a he- mm. such a heavy like topic to talk about and it gets overwhelming and yeah I, I get 100% and I'm like maybe I should just do one on one topic and just get my degree done and you know find a job or something because I don't think I can I don't know like right now I, I, I don't think I want to go back to academia after this um, so it doesn't really matter what I do you know my thesis won't be like Professionalist thing, you know, it'll just be like a topic or like a thesis that maybe like one or two people will read, and that's it. <laughs> so why am I overthinking this? But I guess like if you are working with something like this, yeah. something that is close to your heart, it's difficult not to sort of like put everything your soul into it because yeah. you care about this stuff, uh, and it doesn't matter how many people will read that. You know, the work. But also, is- right? But also, I feel like you said, you know, right now there's so little references that you can refer to in terms of like queer people of color and like everything is written by white people. Mm. And so like the work that you produce will live as part of that bigger collection in academia of like queer scholars of color. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I guess I see it as like something, a part of something bigger, you know? Yeah. So there's this scholar, I mean, like not scholar, but as in like, he's a student who got a scholarship to study in the US and he's gay. Like when he was here in the US, he was very openly gay and everyone in the Indonesian community knew that he was gay. But in Indonesia, I guess like he cannot reveal that part of himself, Mm. even though he is someone who is like very out loud and proud. Because like Mm. some people are not like that, right? Some people like don't, don't feel they need to you know be out loud and proud but so this guy he is also from a small fishing village or farmer village and his parents are definitely like farmers and he has a foundation where he helps other kids from small farmer villages get scholarships at least to universities in the big cities in Indonesia Mm. and after that they go abroad but like the reason he says he cannot be himself in Indonesia and like be out is because if he is out the kids who are under his foundation will be like their parents of those kids will withdraw mm. them mm. and then they won't get scholarship and then they won't mm. get education because the parents are like, oh, you can't be in a foundation that's led by a gay person. And I just like, oh my God, like when I heard that, I was like so angry. Um, and the thing is like, he's he's a pretty like popular guy. Like he has like a big following and he's been in like newspapers a lot. Mm. Like technically he can use that popularity and platform to actually you know, say something about it, but I guess 
you know, it's also like my privilege because I'm here and I've been here for mm. a long time. And I guess like, I don't, you know, I'm not there in Indonesia experiencing, right, right. Like, experiencing really that. About it yeah. Yeah. Um, but like, it, it just made me so angry and sad and yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that kind of anger and disappointment, those are valid emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess like for people in the in diaspora, for example, Um, that is different kind of struggle for us because, you know, we feel like we live in a place where it's safe to be ourselves. And I feel guilty for doing the thing that I'm doing here, knowing that my siblings back home, the queer community there are still struggling with their identities to even like label themselves as like certain things. So I guess that goes back to our previous conversation about coming out, like how we can kind of like challenge that sort of like perception and notion of coming out you know, if you have this kind of like like big platform, you can help people and like students to go get like higher education, use it and risk their lives. But I guess like it's dangerous to put someone on a pedestal, right? To kind of like do everything and make this kind of like social change because we have flaws as well. And I think that is important for us and for me personally to understand that I don't want to expect someone, one person to do this sort of like activism because as a gay person, I cannot speak for the L, you know, like the B and, you know, like non-binary people, for example. I will stick with what I know. And uh, I don't want people to sort of also expect something for me to like speak for communities that I'm not part of because not, that's not my job. You know, our job is to support and hype up those people from the communities with the lived experience. Mm-hmm. And I guess like in the queer or like in this like community organizing activism environment often we put so much expectations on one person with like a big platform um, on social media you know social media can be it is a powerful tool but also we need to also be sort of like critical and mindful about like people boundaries you know people limitations as well yeah. and it's dangerous but to, to sort of like have that mindset like someone is to do that just because they have certain type of like followers or like cloud and yeah i think what is important for my work is that i work like we create like collaborations with people like so we think and we speak and we listen together as a community and like i'm able to sort of like work with different people from the community and like create something beautiful together and like you know we have like representation from like each communities but i also understand that my work is not perfect um there's just so much stuff that i don't understand you know still maybe I'm still like learning about this kind of stuff, navigating the system with the new terms and everything, especially if you grew up in a global South environment, right? Coming here is like a new thing, doing like community organizing, community building. How are you going to do that? You don't speak the language. You know, like you don't know a lot of like terms and growing up, I never heard anyone going to like graduate school. So like for me, my personal project is like how to sort of like navigate this system. Like I never knew I wasn't even taught to dream, you know? Um, because if you were surrounded by like those kind of like influences and like voices, you kind of know, you kind of know how to navigate, you know, like the academia. But again, like going back to activism and community organizing. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's something that I try to be sort of like mindful. And I always tell people whenever I go to like a talk or an activity, I always tell them that whatever I say does not represent the platform that I'm with. You know, the platform serves a space for different voices to sort of like work together so yeah I think that it's important to emphasize as well as a gay cis person I understand my privilege and also you know like what happened before 
example, with BLM, as a non-Black person, there's just so much I don't understand and I'm still learning about this, you know, like movement. And I don't want to speak for anyone from that community or like any community that, that I'm not part of. Because again, you know, like putting people, someone on a pedestal is a dangerous thing, I think. You just put them into this sort of difficult position. <laughs> um, you put them like label, like this person knows everything. So I try not to use the word like the best or something because you are ranking people. And I think we are all equal in our knowledge. We have stuff to share in terms of like community building. And I think we need to work together. And that's a collective work. And that's why it is called community building for a reason. You know, like we're, like Goody People Cambridge, the group that I co-founded is not my personal project. Mm. It is a collective, you know, work. We build that together with five international students from the US, uh, which is funny because like we were just there for, <laughs> less than six months and we were able to build this space and they were all international students because we felt the need to build something for ourselves. We did not see any uh, representation from the university. So that's why we never worked with the university. We kind of work separate ourselves from that. Uh, and there is political in itself. Yeah. In the future, you're thinking of collaborating with, um, with LGBTQ community from Indonesia? This summer, actually, uh, so Sai Division uh, is working on this Indonesian cultural festival, and uh, we have a queer section like programming. So we are looking for films, performances from our friends from Indonesia and friends uh, in the diaspora. So if you know any Indonesian queers doing film, tell them about the project. <laughs> I know the um, there's a an Indonesian film about a gay boy from a small fishing village. Mm -hmm. Is this the same guy village? that you're talking about? Because no, no, no. This is a, this is a film. Village too. <laughs> this is a film. <laughs> but the film is banned in Indonesia. And and like the film went to like a bunch of festivals. Like uh, they, they went like, you know, to a bunch of international festivals. And it's a really great film. I was like, I watched that film before I went back to Indonesia and like did my whole like mm. re rediscovering of you know my identity and my roots and everything and I mm. think like that was like the film that sort of like spearheaded me to mm. like really rediscover you know my ethnic and cultural roots right. yeah and it's a really great film but it's been in Indonesia and it sucks because it's like a really great film have you heard of it Priya? I think I've heard of it but I've never seen the film um yeah I mean so many things are banned in Indonesia <laughs> And it's um, like the thing, well, I mean, I'm not going to spoil it, but I'm just going to say like the ending is realistic, you know. Um, yeah. I love that. I love something that is not like super utopian, you know, like a real thing. Not a happily ever after love story. Yeah, because that's not a reality. Because that's like, not. You know, no, like I think at the 2019 Queer Film Festival Hamburg, because I co-curated the Queer Southeast Asian Muslim Festival with my friend Artie, who is also uh, Indonesian-American. Yeah, we had like a couple of films from Indonesia and uh, someone from the audience asked this question, like why all the films are so sad? And then we were like, yeah, but like, why can't you like so show something that is like happy, you know, people being happy? Sure, like those films exist, but like we just wanted to give this kind of like true representation of the actual Reality. life realities mm -hmm. of you know, our communities, especially if there are trans people. Mm -hmm. uh, and they were like all working class, you know, like. Mm -hmm. If you're like in 
public or like a celebrity, that is a different story because there's a certain type of privilege being in certain kind of like class, right? Mm -hmm. But really like the struggle is the working class uh, struggle. And uh, I guess like, yeah, going back to like your question about working with an Asian uh, queer community, 100%. Uh, and uh, isn't it funny how I, and maybe you can also relate to this, you know, we were able to discover our identity and like quest and everything when we are yeah. here. Yeah. When we're you know? away. When, when we're away. Uh, when we're in a foreign place. Yeah. yeah. When we're outside mm -hmm. of the system, mm -hmm. we yeah. never looked things, you know, the same way again. And um, I don't want to romanticize Indonesia. And I think I don't do some nationalist or something because I don't agree in, in this idea of like nationalism anyway. Indonesia is also, we have a lot of problems as well. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's like creating this sort of like space and working with the uh, queer Indonesians and moving away from this idea of like nation state. Yeah, yeah. Instead, we kind of look at people and individual stories and how they define their identities outside of the nation state ideology. Mm -hmm. As we exist outside of that, the country will never protect us. Um, yeah. And we know that, you know, also it happens in other countries as well. It's still happening in, in the U.S. even today with the anti-trans laws, right? Yeah, yeah. With the campaign, imagine like the nation never will never protect us, no matter you know like the system was built by straight people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we exist outside of the system, and I think that's the beauty of community organizing. It's so empowering, but also it's underappreciated because a lot of people are burnt out and like, mm -hmm. which is so sad. And unfortunately, that's the community organizing, and that's. What I'm doing and maybe like I don't know what you're studying but like cultural studies yeah. are one of the most underappreciated and type of knowledge in terms of like you know because we don't serve the capitalist system <laughs> and but like our work it's so important you know like somebody needs to tell you know this kind of story somebody needs to make a film somebody needs to talk about art not everyone is designed to work for I don't know the capitalist system it's so fucked up and it's so unfair and it's does you know I don't know it's so painful to live in this reality and I think that's the challenge for many people in the community organizing I want to devote myself my time energy into this thing but at the same time I think there needs to be some kind of balance and we don't have you know like guidelines or like manuals to sort of like do this kind of work we do this thing because we love it it's like building the plane as we fly it this is from Beyond Survival, this book about strategies and stories from transformative uh, justice movement. And I learned a lot from this. Um, and how do we apply that thing in Europe? <laughs> um, yeah, I think also, yeah. I mean, this is this is like, this is me being pessimistic, mm. but mm. I think in the US, a lot of people write, know? yeah, it's like people, people write stuff, but it's like, they don't really apply it. And people say stuff, but they don't really, you know, live it out in their lives. And like these movements in the US, like they are getting global attention and maybe like from the outside it might look like oh like you know this You're is a country <laughs> yeah a country finally reconciling with you know things but you know living here and working with a lot of like people mm -hmm. who mm -hmm. claim to be anti-racist and everything it's it's still very much just like what can I say so that people will so that people won't like attack me or like so that mm -hmm. I will 
you, you know, it's it's just like for image and like for right. performance. Um, yeah, so, it's very performative yeah. for some yeah. people. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you know, walk the walk, <laughs> talk the talk. <laughs> but yeah, no, like the people that I work with here, thankfully they are really committed into that. But it's also exhausting, you know, mentally, emotionally, everything, uh, especially during times like this. There's so much happening and like there's just so much our little brains can take. Yeah, talking about like social media activism. <laughs> I'm not one of those like yeah. activists. Uh, try not to be. Uh, <laughs> I love consuming information, but it gets, I have my limits sometimes and like to sort of like step back and read books, listen to podcasts. I'm so happy you guys are doing this thing because I love mm-hmm. podcasts. I'm, when I was staying in Malaysia, podcast was my best friend. I would listen to it on the way to the university and I would listen to Food for Thought. For Thought? Food, uh, food, food for, for thought. thought. Oh, food yeah. for thought. Yeah. yeah, they're so funny. I love foreign and everyone. Um, and they're just like my parents. <laughs> <laughs> and I learned a lot about my identities um, and myself from this podcast, uh, in particular, and other many podcasts. For example, call your girlfriend. You know, like this very like engaging and like easy to process kind of stuff. And yeah, I think we need more of that sort of like different variety of storytelling. Uh, not just like social media, but also like in films. Because this is something that I've been thinking about lately during lockdown. Because like I just realized I get super overwhelmed after spending a lot of time on Instagram consuming like a lot of information. It's important to also educate yourself. But like, again, I need to sort of reflect about that as well and work on my mental health. I mean, I can take like two or like three weeks break and, you know, like the work is still there. No matter how long I take a break from social media or like activism or like community organizing, the work of like anti-racism campaign and, you know, racism still alive until I don't know when. My job is not to solve that. I don't think I will ever solve homophobia, <laughs> racism. Um, I mean, especially now it's like the more progress we make there's also the other side that's becoming even more conservative or like more homophobic more anti-queer or whatever it is so i feel like there's always that like what do you call it you know two opposing sides trying to fight each other and it's like Mm. the more quote-unquote woke people become there's also a Mm. a group of people that become even more closed-minded i feel no, I get that, um, you know, bubble conflicts. <laughs> that thing is real as well. Yeah, but I think it's important to uh, continue having conversation with them because like that's how you make change, I think. But then also now we are facing like, not for everybody, but the way people discuss things on the internet mm-hmm. now, I don't think they have compassion to like, you know, actually discuss things. It's just about competition to win the argument which is odd. yeah i've seen some of those discourses <laughs> i love twitter discourses i love instagram discourses i love i'm not on twitter but i like a lot of people say like twitter is the most toxic place <laughs> yeah for me it's instagram sometimes i don't know i have for me instagram like too because I'm, I'm on it mm. relationship with instagram love-hate relationship but most of the time I think I use that for networking and I've met so many incredible people from this platform just like anything I think you know everything can sort of like cause harm (laughs) and it's about like how much we want to limit ourselves to that and you know I think it's healthy and important to take a break from anything from doing anything be it like a social media or like community organizing and take a few steps back 
but yeah, like the Indonesian community here, I never felt like I belong somewhere. Going back to your first question about working with the queer Indonesians, I'm so happy that I met these incredible people at Soy Division and that we are working on so many exciting projects. And I've never felt like I belong somewhere until I met them. Mm-hmm. You know, like I'm starting to kind of like reclaim my identity as an Indonesian and what it means to be an Indonesian in Germany in you know living here and how I want to sort of like like do I want to identify myself as an Indonesian yes because I grew up there and this is something that I you can never get rid of yeah but it's like a very complicated relationship with Indonesia for me because I don't think I can see myself living there anymore so yeah I think I would love to go back to Indonesia just to visit and also not. Like where, which part if you go back? I want to go back to Jogja. Still. You do uh, still? That's my home. Yeah, that's mm. my second home. If I had to choose like a place in Indonesia, it would be Jogja. Mm. That's where my you know queer family is. Yeah. Um, yeah. I miss the food and you know like food is so healing and I've been sick and I've been eating a lot of Indonesian food. I spend my money on food. <laughs> <laughs> me too the same with Alexandra. <laughs> so so I, I used to live in Brooklyn um and because of this whole pandemic thing I basically was forced to move to Queens and so back in Brooklyn my biggest complaint was that I'm so far from the Indonesian community in New York because it's like they're they're in Queens there's like this neighborhood that's quote-unquote little Indonesia and it's oh. called Elmhurst um in Queens um, and they, you know, like over there, if you go there, like you're walking the streets and you hear Indonesian language, you know, so it, it almost mm-hmm. feels like, yo, like, am I in another country? <laughs> um, but when I was in Brooklyn, I was so far away from all of that. And I felt really detached. But now that I'm in Queens, every week, like, no, actually, like every three days, I order something for them to deliver to me because <laughs> now we're close. And yeah, like, I mean, all my money goes to Indonesian food. <laughs> yeah, same. Like, I spend like 20 euros in food and like, uh, I don't know what to eat tomorrow. <laughs> I know <laughs> but I, I do feel, I feel good because I feel like I am supporting this Indonesian yeah. community mm-hmm. and they're not like, you know, they're not like big Jeff Bezos type of people. They're Mm -hmm. literally like making food in their kitchen Mm -hmm. and then selling it and delivering it to people. Like, you know, like buy Subway. and like small businesses, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. you know, they carry like 20 at once and like they deliver, you know, all over the borough, so yeah. Yeah, same like here. I try to support my people. Although I don't have that kind of money, but I'm like, I'm going to support myself. You know, I deserve this. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. um, Yeah. Yeah. Food is so healing, and I think that's one way how I kind of reconnect with my heritage, mm-hmm. with my roots. I've been listening to a lot of traditional Indonesian music that is considered as like low form of art, like Tampursari, mm-hmm. for example. And I grew up listening to this music, uh, Kosida, for example. You know, like someday I want to perform that piece of like my upbringing uh, in the context of like queerness and uh, wearing like a traditional Indonesian kebaya. Mm-hmm. Uh, with like the hair and like the headpiece and everything. Yeah. I'm just curious, what do you think about Ramintan? Oh, what do you want to know about? I don't know. I mean, it's like, I guess from my experience in Jogja, mm-hmm. it's like 
yeah, I work with these people who who are like supposedly, um, you know, human rights artists, activists, mm-hmm. and they try to challenge the national narrative, you know, challenge nationalism. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when whenever they put up like performances and plays, like they have these like characters that are clearly like trope characters mm-hmm. that make mm-hmm. fun of mm-hmm. trans women, you know, and yet they grow up so Ramintan is drag right mm-hmm. and it's huge in Jogja and people are always like you know when I went there people are like oh well if you've never experienced Ramintan you have to like go and see it because it's really good um, and there's no other place in Indonesia that has something like this it's like a, a once in a you know it's it, right, right, right. yeah and so there's that but then at the same time like that doesn't change their perspective and they're still like hateful and then they still like I guess make shows where the character is a man dressed up as a woman and then like you know they make fun of the character so I guess like I'm just wondering Mm -hmm. like what you think about that because or like maybe maybe that I don't know like is Ramintan like exploitative I don't think so I think like the people who work there enjoy working there right yeah, I mean, I've gone to, because like when you first asked this question, I was thinking of the other place because they have like two different places. Oh. Um, yeah, like you're talking about the drag shows, right? Oh, oh. What, were you, what were you thinking about? Uh, the small restaurant. Oh, but the, the drag show is in the restaurant, right? Yeah, like two of them are restaurants, actually. <laughs> mm. the, uh, the, the, the one that I was thinking about is the old one. The, uh, so Remington is on Malioboro Street, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the the new place. Um, yeah, I think it's good that they can create like work opportunities for people in the community. Uh, but I don't know exactly how they function as a place. And uh, yeah, I think it's for like straight people. It's fun to watch. It's any you know, it's no different from when an Asian person making fun of themselves in front of white people. You know, they will try try to like. Mm-hmm entertain them by putting themselves down uh, I mm-hmm. think the same thing can be said about that as well like with straight people I think the the, the, the shows are designed for that and uh, it's not the kind of like drag that is radical for you know like straight people because I think for them it's like about making money and like sustaining themselves and like they have to do what the audience wants unfortunately so mm-hmm. but I love that this you know, place exist. It's one of the few places in Jogja, I think. But hopefully there will be more of like independent performance, you know, places where people who are in the arts can sort of like channel their work and like exhibit it work in a way that is kind of fair for them and that is like true to their identity and their art, if that makes sense. Yeah. But yeah, I love the drag show there. <laughs> I think it's I mean it's so rare to find something like that uh, outside of uh, Jogja. I mean Jakarta is maybe a different question and i was watching this um uh, parody from hasri this like a singaporean comic i think he is from like mtv asia or something with like full-on indonesian and malay culture and i never like appreciated that aspect of indonesia until i came here and i guess mm-hmm. like when you work in this like cultural sector you know you want to romantize like that aspect and yeah. for like second generation of like indonesian germans i think it's different kind of longing i like when someone asks me where i'm from i have the answer i'm from the continent but for like people who are second generation that's a different conversation you know like being third culture kids 
yeah i mean we're just like in different places in our journeys i guess and that's valid you know like i have the answer of like yeah i'm from indonesia i've been here for like two years but like for second generation is different kind of journey for them and i try not to romantize the aspect of indonesia so much yeah. because i mean i never know toxic. i never know yeah. what to answer like even though i'm still an immigrant but it's like yeah. because i spent half my life there and half my life here and also because like i also spent time in singapore and so it's like i don't even know like when people say where where are you from i'm like i was born in jakarta <laughs> but then before this i was in seattle mm. and bellevue and blah blah, blah. Mm. I've been to Jakarta like a few times for my visa. I never liked the city. <laughs> um, people are snobbies. And so, uh, yeah. It's true. <laughs> I love being like from, uh, I love being like, I'm so proud of like telling people that I'm from like a small city and from Jogja. And when they go to like Jogja, for example, they think like they're the best, like they're in everything that they- Oh, Jakarta up. people? Yeah. <laughs> As a Jakarta native, I can admit that's true. Ragil is currently working with Soy Division for their upcoming Kaum Festival scheduled for this August. Check out their website and socials on how to submit your work to their festival. Ragil is currently finishing up his graduate studies, focusing on queer migration trajectories and the arts as an avenue of expression for queer communities. Thanks for listening, and until our next feast, we'll leave you with this. And you know, like, but it's so healing. Mm-hmm.